Games you deserve. Welcome to Games You Deserve, brought to you by Special Reserve Games. This week, we hear more of your video game remake ideas, plus we tell our E3 stories and wrap things up with part four of Fireflower. some more uh, emails from some of the, the folks listening out there, the, the podcast fans. Do we call them? Are, are they fans? People still send emails, huh? I just, uh... I guess. I, well, I got, I got a text or a page on my pager the other day. I, Oh really? Was it your dealer? It was. <laughs> yeah, it was, was your really doctor because they just said one four three, and oh, you know, right. Mine always just say nine one one nine one one nine one one. You know, all that over and over again. That usually meant get home. I didn't have a pager. What are we talking about? Exactly. Uh, so let we me, got some emails from the email machine. Yeah, let me let me read one of these off here. So this is from Mark. Mark, it's Guy Man stuff on Discord. And he oh, says, hey. uh, hello, Eric. It was fun checking out Shadow Warrior 2 blood splatter differences the other day in Discord. I, before I go any further, Smitty, you want to explain that one? Because some people might not get that. Well, <laughs> sometimes we hurt people, and there's sometimes there's blood. No, on uh, Shadow Warrior 2, which was actually the, the pre-Special Reserve games as a company, uh, Special Reserve version of Shadow Warrior 2 that was done directly for Devolver by me, uh, was also the first time we had done a randomization of a vector layer. Of, of, we've done a randomization of blood splatter on every single uh, copy of Shadow Warrior 2. So not only did the sequential numbers all designate an individual, you know, type uh, of copy, also the blood splatter lets you to have a, a truly original, unique print of each one of the games. And so we were trying to prove a little bit that this really was happened, you know, that this had happened, that we really did produce this, these kinds. of. so we started posting pictures in the Discord of our different blood splatter patterns of our games. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was a lot Long of fun to share. There, sorry about that. Oh no, no, no. I mean, you know that—that's the kind of thing that's really cool about those boxes is that literally every single one is truly unique. So, um, he says he goes on to say, "Thank you guys for being awesome and doing what you do. I love our community on Discord, which is great. So, if you haven't joined the Discord, do so. Uh, Discord.gg/specialreservegames. Um, games I'd like to see remastered." And and this is this is cool because we've talked about uh, at least one of these games. He says, "Well, Simcopter is probably highest on my list, followed by Streets of SimCity and and SimCity 2000, which I know Smitty had mentioned when we were talking about SimCity." He said, "Another would be the original Serious Sam, which I played a ton mm. of at LAN parties uh, mm. in his high school media center. Boy, that brings it back." 
And he says, uh, by the way, I'll be checking the mintiness of Fetch really oh. soon. Ha ha. Then I'll send it off to my folks in Florida to give to Brownie, our pup. And he sent a nice little photo of, of the pupper here. Oh, my uncle Gordon and Aunt Joyce had a dog named Brownie up in Abilene, Kansas. There you go. There you go. So what do you think of the Sim City or the Sim, all the Sim choices in that? I hate it. No, no, no. <laughs> everything he said. No, move on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, excellent ideas. Like everything he said was just, you know, it's, it's when you say uh, remake or, or a reserve or a, a physical copy or collector's edition, you know, the one thing that always just kind of hurts my heart is uh, that PC has such a small market for collectibles. And I think we've talked about this once or twice before. So, you know, like Streets of SimCity or SimCity 2000. I don't think it's SimCity 2000 as a console game. It I really it was, wasn't. Oh, you know, God, no. It's a PC game. I, it's a PC game. So yeah. what would we, we make it on? Not on Switch. We would make it on for PC. We'd probably put it on a DVD. And holy crap. Uh, we'd probably have to put a thumb drive in there just so you could install it on 90% of the new laptops. They have no DVD drive. They have no disk drive at all. But let's move on to the next one. This one came from Brendan. He says, hi, Eric. Just want to say great work with the podcast. I've been enjoying tuning in so far. You are all offering a great perspective on the medium and wider industry. Uh, to cut to the chase, the game that I want remade would be Extreme G. Perhaps an oddball choice, but this is a game I fondly remember from my childhood. I miss publishers like Acclaim that published solid games and, and that gave a new spin on established formulas. I always thought Extreme G was a fun spin on Wipeout with a fantastic multiplayer battle that took inspiration from Mario Kart. So mm. That's fair. That's, that's very accurate. I think that's a good idea. I, you know, if I look at where the Switch is, for instance, today, you know, we've got a smattering of, of racing games, but I really haven't seen anything recently that kind of really hits that note that Wipeout or Extreme G or anything along those lines hits. That kind of uh, kind of arcadey, you know, hard hard and fast race. It doesn't it doesn't come across in too many of them. I think the only one where I get even close to that right now that I really like is um, Horizon Chase Turbo. Uh, PM Studios put that out and they've done a they've done a pretty nice job there. Um, but it, it's kind of that arcadey feel of racer. It doesn't really exist as much as the the realistic stuff. You know, once once Gran Turismo came out on the PlayStation, there was a huge push for realistic. Yeah. You know, it, it can all be pole position. <laughs> I had much more fun with with Wipeout and and Need for Speed and and those kinds of games. I mean, Need for Speed is more realistic, but I still enjoy that aspect of it than. Uh, than the realism of, of uh, Gran Turismo. Well, we talked about Daytona, the, right, you know, one of yes. the other ones, and that's very arcade style. It, yeah. It's not realistic at all, but no, it, come on. it's great. It gives you that feeling of speed, you know? When you're, you go fast. And that's yeah. the thing with, with the Switch and with Nintendo. Nintendo's big one is, of course, of Mario Kart. And that's fun. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun. But you don't get that feeling of speed from it. You know, you're not racing super fast cars. You're racing carts. The whole point is, is that it's like go-karts. Yeah. So it's not quite as good. Not quite the same. But that's a great suggestion for sure. I, I'll tell you, speaking of carts, there was, you know, one um, there was one game we made, Kart Precision Racing, uh, that was a racing game. It was for kart championship auto racing teams. And uh, that was a game that was truly just a simulator, but it was so realistic. The physics were so accurate. I remember uh, Blundell, what was his name? Michael Blundell, I think, was the racer. He also did some open wheel stuff, but uh, 
I mean, other open wheel uh, tournaments, but uh, the cart was such a, it was a simulation, but it was marketed as a game. It should have been marketed to the people that like uh, Microsoft Flight Sim, you know, if you will, like that. If you like Microsoft Flight Sim, you'll love cart precision racing. You know, <laughs> it should not have been marketed like a, a Daytona racing or, you know, right. or a, a pole position 14. But um, because I, so I would say on some of the games, if you get too realistic in the physics and the handling of them, they become less fun less of a game and the replayability goes down as well so just it's just kind of a weird balance when you're talking about how realistic or how fast or something really feels well if it really felt realistic you probably wouldn't play it anymore <laughs> yeah, yeah it'd be know? more of a job than a game well, well it's kind of boring yeah it's like well, that's yeah. how it feels when i drive every day <laughs> exactly i gotta go to work why do i want to do uh, this holy shit this guy's taking roy off the grid this guy doesn't have a social security number for roy so the next email came from Jason, says, listening to your podcast, and I'm really enjoying it. In episode three, you asked people to email you the games they would love to see remade. The three games from the 90s that I would love to see remade are Aerobiz Supersonic, Ogre Battle, and Rock and Roll Racing. Thank you for the great podcast. Hope you and your loved ones are safe and healthy during these uncertain times. So first off, I want to say that I'm safe and, safe and healthy, and uh, Smitty is just healthy. He's, he's very unsafe. I'm not mentally <laughs> healthy. I'm physically healthy, but yeah, I'm still <laughs> relatively safe. Dan, are you safe? Yeah, I am safe. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I haven't really had anybody, thankfully, in my family directly affected medically by the pandemic and the, the, the different things our world has been dealing with over the last few months, uh, especially even over the last few weeks. But, uh, it, you know, th- so I can say, thankfully, the health side of it all in fact i think we were just talking at the beginning i actually was tested for antibodies for the sars cov2 uh antibodies which that's covid19 which it is a sars virus and um no antibodies present i was almost for sure i had it back in january or december but once again it's one of those things not to be strange here but to actually know the truth you know really helps me in a lot of ways because you start thinking, did I have it? Am I immune? Could I get it again? Did I felt like this? What if I feel like this again? Like nowadays, just to be able to know one or two answers for fact is so liberating. So yes, thanks for all the emails and inspiring, great conversation. And my response is, uh, always seek the truth. Okay. Well, the truth is, Aerobiz, you wanted Aerobiz, Aerobiz Supersonic, cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ogre Battle and Rock and Roll Racing to be <laughs> to be remade. Oh well, the truth is, the truth is, they're not going to get remade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that is the truth. Remade. That is the truth. <laughs> that, that that's the truth. Of those, the only ones I ever I played was Aerobiz, and I I did enjoy that game. I mean, you know, when you think about it, there's a lot of older games that could could go with a remake. And I guess really the only question is, do people, it's almost the same thing you guys face when, when choosing the games you release. Like, is there an audience for it? That's really what we're trying to determine here, right? Um, any of these games, they're all the all nostalgic value for us because you played them when you were younger. Um, so the question is, what's worth remaking and what isn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and then goes back to what is remaking? Is it making a physical version to collect it or are you improving it? You know, there's a lot of you know yes, a lot of that, things there's a question about that as well yeah, it's a really it's a really wide kind of thing to to it's a broad scope to to examine mm, uh, the next said. one came from bradley here bradley says good afternoon eric loving the podcast it is excellent a big remake dream for me would be commander keen 
pretty oh. sure pretty sure Smitty's checked that out, played that. Uh, an updated side scroller, not far off from the original, but with quality of life updates for sure. Have a number of memories burning out my eyes late at night to that. Also, I know it has been out on everything, but I want a new updated horror centric version of Heiankyo Alien. I have always loved the puzzle feeling of that game, but want to be terrified uh, by the aliens escaping holes and chasing the player. Keep up the good work, both on the podcast and at SRG. Thanks for everything. So yeah, Commander Keen. Uh, how many of those were there? There was there was a bunch of them made, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not sure on that, but uh, the good news is Commander Keen. We are currently remaking it with an eye-burning device, so that guy can... It's going to be amazing. They're going to be for sale soon. Just keep coming back to our website. I'm almost positive I'm not lying to you. Okay, I'm lying to you. But if I did, I'd have to make it with an eye-burning device. I was, like, well, just, I was just thinking about that buying a monitor the other day. Like Some of these old games like Commander Keen that you set in front of, a CRT monitor just burning your eyeballs. Like Literally, when you say that, it doesn't almost have a a modern day reference even because we have these nice cool led screens that aren't you know literally shining a flashlight into our retinas <laughs> you know? especially and you want to play games in the dark hell half the programmers i know had to have no lights in their office exactly you know? exactly because you know the crts were more than enough more than I mean, enough. number one, they sat wherever you put them because they weighed 422 pounds. But, uh, but yeah, they were just like a giant. Go look at a CRT. It, it actually looks like the projection of a flashlight, you know, from one side to the other, which is exactly what it was. Very much. <laughs> the, anyway, first, so, the first Commander yeah. Keen was released back in December 14th of 1990 on DOS. Oh, my gosh. So that takes what? you back quite a bit. And then wow. uh, get this. I was in first grade. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now get this the uh latest announcement june 9th 2019 at bethesda's e3 conference they announced a commander keen for ios and android devices so how far have we come on that sort of thing you know yeah and that's, that's kind of a common thing you, th- you see these a lot of old a lot of older games get a release of, of some kind on ios because it's it's like the cheapest way to go and and it's probably got some sort of uh you know, internal microtransactions or, or uh, in-app purchases or whatever freemium content they can come up with. To be able um, to jump so, two more times, please pay us 99 cents. Yeah, that kind of stuff. That's what I hate about the mobile games. But um, but yeah, that's, that's I've seen that a couple couple different times for older games. Yeah, right. it's, it is it's, really it's cool. A shame. It's, it's so, great to hear everybody's different wish list, though. We got a voicemail from, from Dalton. You have one new message to listen to your messages for new messages press one first new message hey guys just wanted to give you some of my suggestions for games that are in need of a remake or remastered first one is eternal darkness that debuted on the nintendo gamecube second would have to be the fear trilogy that debuted on the xbox 360 and the playstation 3 and last but not least the dead space trilogy that also debuted on the Xbox 360 and PS3. I think any of these games are well deserving of 60 FPS, fix a lot of the textures that really didn't sit well with a lot of the players that played it all the way back uh, in the day. I just, I would absolutely love to see any of these games get that fresh coat of paint on them. 
I like the way he puts it, fresh coat of paint. That's true. I think that's a good that's way. That's a good way of describing what is happening with these games. Certainly, that's the case for Final Fantasy VII. You know, it just kind of a completely reskinned game so that it looks super new and up to date, uh, but is largely the same story and the same content. So, so what was it? Eternal. I missed the Eternal first Darkness one was was yeah. the first one he was talking about. Now that was a GameCube release, and I found this to be interesting for a couple of reasons. The first was this is now, you know overall probably like the third fourth fifth uh horror game that we've heard somebody mention uh yes. in the past it seems to be like a recurring theme a lot of people well, are really enjoying that that genre oh it's a popular genre but also people like the the dated graphics kind of pull people out of it you know you don't get as into the game that was made 20 years ago because they're kind of pixely and not so so interesting to look at. And so the newer ones, like the Resident Evil remake, are definitely achieves that, right? Yeah. It's a newer game. It brings you to the game more, the better it looks. And that, that makes a ton of sense. The other, the other thing that I found interesting about this was this was GameCube era. And so this kind of ties directly into one of the things I've been doing personally with, with gaming. I have been uh, trying to put together uh, some old consoles that uh, recently have had ways to connect to HDMI. Because, you know, it's... It's hard to get that nice, clear picture out of that old composite thing. So one of these was the GameCube, and GameCube actually had uh, some some models had this really cool digital AV port, and uh, a couple of companies have figured out how to create this little module that I'm holding up to show you guys, and it's it's uh, takes that digital AV port and makes it out uh, HDMI. Now that HDMI wasn't even around when the GameCube was released and Eternal mm -hmm. Darkness came out in 2002. Uh, HDMI wasn't even thought of in 2002 yet. Uh, at least I don't think so. But it certainly wasn't around when the GameCube was released. And so I've been going through and putting together pieces of the GameCube to try to get this uh, kind of all put together so that I can play some old GameCube games. And I always thought, you know, this kind of game, you're right. If they had this nowadays reskin like they did with RE, um, it would be more immersive, right? It would plunge you into the game more. Right now, if you were to play it, you'd probably go, hmm, that's not as cool looking as I remember. In fact, in fact, this particular game was originally planned. Eternal Darkness was originally planned for the Nintendo 64. And then, you know, didn't quite make it on to that quite the way that they wanted and came over to uh, GameCube for development. Um, but yeah, really good choices. Um, Smitty, uh, you know, we have promised for a number of episodes that we would pick a winner and, and uh, drop a little bundle on them. Yes. We were going to have a contest that we make up the rules on the spot and then pick a winner, a winner that we uh, make up on the spot <laughs> that we randomly draw with no rules Nobody needs rules for this, is what you're saying. This is a rule. Anybody who pretty submitted much. suggestions, anybody who oh, responded to Eric's okay. call, is to entered to win. So all these people gotcha. are entered to win, including uh, Dalton with that uh, voicemail. Mm -hmm. um, so how do we how do we choose a winner? So so I'll tell you what. If I throw that in and we look at this, I would say just pick a number between one and eleven. 12,002. Oh, 11. that's not how that works. Just pick a number between 1 and 11. 1. 
One. <laughs> so so we are going to reach back out to uh, Justin. Justin was the first person back in uh, late April to go ahead and send us a message. Wow. Oh, gee. I will reach out to Justin and notify Justin via email. But yeah, we'll send Justin a nice little prize package. And maybe Justin can uh, let us know and post some pictures on Twitter or something once, once Justin gets that. That would be a nice share. And, you know, just as a hint, you know, we have all kinds of things. We have overruns of stickers, instruction booklets. We have patches. We have static clings. We have different things that we do for different reserves that we might have, you know, small accessory bundles of flat boxes, flat jacket covers, unnumbered versions of games, numbered versions of games. Scrap paper of notes that, that Smitty's taken and almost threw away. We always have a lot of great things. We have a great team. We're always making a lot of different assets. We have a lot of different pieces of art around. So if you're a collector of uh, art, we might have a good prizes for you here. So Justin, by the time you hear this, I will probably have already reached out. Congratulations on uh, winning our little tiny prize package. I promise you guys we will be doing more of this in the future. We, we love to uh, engage with you guys and, and hear your feedback. Again, don't forget you can email me, eric, E-R-I-K, at specialreservegames.com. And then, uh, Dan, tell them how they do the uh, anchor message voicemail thing thingy thingamabobber it's just in the show notes of every episode now you may not be listening to this podcast on anchor but you do need to have the anchor app in order to respond via voice so you would you could find this you can just search um games you deserve on the anchor app find the podcast and then in the show notes you'll see a link to uh, record a voice message for us and as you can hear they, they sound great i love it i love the quality it's not just like a phone message it's actually recorded off of somebody's uh, smartphone so the quality of audio is excellent George isn't at home. Believe a message at the beep. I must be out before I pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. We have one more voicemail to listen to, and this one doesn't have anything to do with any remakes. It was another, just a, a genuine question from uh, one of our listeners. And um, let's give it a listen, and then you guys can respond to it. I'd just like you guys to talk about what led you to the decision to only make 500 copies of your next release. You just sold thousands of copies of Hotline Miami. And Mother Russia Bleeds has some crossover with this game. They're both violent. They're both dark. They're both fun. Now you have a larger customer base, but you're limiting how many people can buy. I understand PS4 doesn't sell as well across the limited game companies. But 500? That just seems silly. And the amount that you're allocating to limited run is 1,500, but they're not the same. And collectors who you know want to buy both of them are going to be struggling to get what they want. I know you've already said you're only doing 500, but man, please just reconsider. You're just doing it a service to your yourself, to the community that you've built. It's just kind of an unfortunate thing. You guys are doing so good right now. Your company appears to be growing, and I want it to continue to grow, and I want to be a part of that. Well, I will tell you, there is always a decision on how many copies to make on anything when we're doing a set number. Three. Um, It's always based on three. 
But, and that's the answer. I mean, I don't know how clear I can be. <laughs> no, the, when we're talking about some of the older games that we're actually getting to do a physical version of now, uh, there is a, a school of thought here by doing an open pre-order is kind of detrimental to the game and the potential sales of it and maybe even the audience on the value that's put on it if they're going to actually remember this game after two or three years and so there's an idea that if it's taken three years to get it out on physical if you did an open pre-order for say 20 or 30 days there's not going to be any urgency to actually go and buy it and half of the people who would really want it will most likely forget to actually buy it believe it or not that's really an answer that's not a me saying that these that's customers saying that to me and then there's also a value of the title itself where you have say in nintendo switch you have a game that has to be sold for 29.99 as a mandated msrp for physical well if you have the exact same game for ps4 that it's the same game uh just a different platform does it make it any less valuable and I say no. So the game would also sell on the, as far as I'm concerned, a reserve that would be a PS4 version is what you call price parity, you know, or you'd have price parity. It's also $29.99 or $39.99. So at that point, you also have to build a lot of assets to make sure that the value of that digital game that you might be able to download for six bucks, you know, has a great physical value. So all that has to be taken into consideration to what we call COGS, cost of goods. And you just kind of have to balance off your cogs on how many might think you could be able to sell and but also how many items that you're willing to produce the assets like uh, you know stickers or patches or, or art cards or anything like that we have to design and print all that stuff so far in advance to have it ready anywhere close to a time that we'd like to sell and ship it so we have to risk and and lay out a lot of money uh, as well that we just can't recoup if we don't sell things. So there's a lot of risk versus um, sales potential, I guess, on some of this. But more than anything, I, I think we look at numbers of how do we maintain the value of these titles once they've been sold? Not not like we're trying to make it easy for eBay to make, uh, you know, a 100x markup on these gains in the secondary market. It's not that. It's that if you buy something, you really know that it's limited. We really weren't lying. That's not a uh, it's not a marketing ploy. We think making a set number of games and leaving it at, at that is kind of representative of what the uh, you know not how much the game's value, but we want to preserve the value of that vi digital game in a physical state. So in a, a case where we've announced Mother Russia Bleeds uh, for PS4, we announced 500 units for PS4 for us and 1,500 units for an alternate cover with limited run games, and. Truthfully, Limited Run Games has a, a more active PS4 collector audience uh, than we do. And, and so it makes sense for them to have some more of those units. The only reason we agreed to even do Mother Russia Bleeds PS4 is that we could collectively uh, sell a few thousand, uh, not a few hundred, or we wouldn't have probably made it. But Nintendo Switch outsells PS4 5 to 1, 
easy across the board just five to one so every time you sell one ps4 you've already sold five switches so i wouldn't make the same number of switches that i would ps4 even though they have price parity they might have the exact same contents inside the box other than one's a ps4 and one's a switch so there it's kind of two different audiences same game uh two different audiences ps4 audience and switch audience and those aren't always the same people He's talking about somebody as somebody. I assume he's one of these people that that would buy both versions as a collector, right? So that there there is that that's the issue. I think he's trying to address here. And 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 he's he he definitely has a point, and we definitely know about those people. We we love those people. You know, they, I am one of those people. <laughs> yeah, hell, I'm one of those people. But you know, that's that's also still that's like a niche niche group of a niche group, right? And so it's hard right. to kind of gauge what that's like and then you know you talked about five to one that number is widening all the time yeah there's there's different ways that we are trying to sell and we never are trying to put anything under uh because uh you know even for like mother russia bleeds we announced 500 as ps4 and there was an immediate outcry like and it wasn't just the five guys who love PS4 yelling the loudest. It was the uh, 500 guys who love PS4 yelling really loud, kind of just like this voicemail. So thankfully, we announced early enough that I'm not locked into any manufacturing uh, uh, specific manufacturing quantities so because of the immediate feedback we are going to increase the mother russia bleeds playstation 4 run for special reserve games to a thousand units instead of 500 so we're going to double the amount and that may not sound very big like whoop-de-doo that's going to sell out in seven minutes instead of three minutes it's uh it's a significant increase in the PS4 side. So I hope everybody that wants it on PS4 has an opportunity to get it. If you want to get it on Switch, um, you know, have you, I hope you have an opportunity to get it and buy them both if you like. Uh, but if you are a supporter of PlayStation 4 and you want to see more physical games uh, appear uh, on that platform in higher quantity numbers, especially by us. I mean, really, the only way to do that is just to buy the stuff that's put out on PS4 and all of us. Limited run games, me, uh, we will get more confidence, you know, in the not that the platform will sell, but it has the capability of selling closer back to what Switch is selling now. So I know that's a really crazy business laced answer, but that's that's really the you know, we, we started out with PlayStation 4 and PC at Special Reserve Games. We became um, a, a publisher, a co-publisher for Switch along the way. We, we started out PS4, so I love that platform a lot. And uh, I hope at PS5 we get to start making more disc-based products. Agreed. Agreed. And don't forget, you guys can, uh, using that voicemail, you can send other questions. Feel free to, to let us know, you know, what other things you might want to know about. You know, definitely shoot us messages and, you know, hopefully we can put you on the podcast. So we appreciate all of the responses you guys have been given. Thank you. Listen, you ignorant frickholes. Let's get real. Really real. Press conferences are a thing of the past. Most companies aren't even doing them anymore. I've got something better. Oh, balls. You're not talking about your video project again, are you, Linda? Sure as toots I am, Don. Sure as Emmer effing toots. Video project? We've been leaning on these expensive live shows for far too long. It's been like two. Putting on these huge masturbatory shows to feed the egos of frickhole marketing suits and failed, air quotes, marketing directors. Why not we take the message right to the mother-loving community? Why not mainline it, you know? Why not skip the criminy, bull hockey, sunset biscuits, and go right to the public with... A video. Sure as sticks a video. 
marketing videos so distilled people overdose on purchase intent before it's even over. I'm talking heroin up butt levels of marketing. This is the week that E3 would have happened in uh, 2020. Now, of course, the event was canceled pretty early on uh, in the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, all, all live events are still canceled. It's still not uh, acceptable to be holding huge events like Boo. E3, but, well, I mean, it's, yeah, no, it sucks, but we want people to be safe, I, right? I'm booing so, COVID. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's worth talking about, uh, you know, we don't have an E3 uh, this year to, of course, uh, tell us all the new stuff coming out, but I, I know you guys have had some experiences with E3 in the past. Well, I would have been at E3 right now. I mean, there, I would absolutely be in Los Angeles with quite a few people. Uh, right down at the corner of Pico and Figueroa, uh, right across from the Staples Center. Because, you know, even last year I was there, the year before, but uh, never exhibit inside of the E3 hall. Uh, I always set up a shop uh, at the Devolver booth and way back when in the Gathering of Developers booth, which has never really been inside the uh, confines of E3 proper but just right across the street. <laughs> so, yeah, it is kind of strange because this is the kind of year where, or excuse me, this is the time of year when we catch up with old colleagues that, especially OGs that we haven't seen in years and years. Where did somebody go? Did Dan get a new job? Oh, I heard Eric's working at Sony now. You know, all that stuff still happened and would still be happening now. And, um, it's not as much about the parties anymore as it is the connections and not everything is now revealed at E3 kind of like it used to be, uh, thanks to the internet basically. But, um, it still exists in people's mind. There's still a lot of announcements and virtual announcements, digital press releases, digital press conferences being done uh, around the same time frame because this time of year is oddly so ingrained in the psyche of not just the game developer, the gaming business that, you know, the first couple of weeks of June, that's E3 time. And it's still strange that E3 has been canceled for months but everybody's marketing plans were still geared around this this few weeks in June, and a lot of them are sticking to it. When was the first time you went to E3? 1998. Ooh. I mean, it, my first <laughs> E3 was 1998. It was in Atlanta, Georgia. And when the early days of E3, it wasn't always in L.A. It was going to bounce back and forth every other year. Atlanta one year, L.A. the other year, back and forth. And then... You know, I'm sure, <laughs> let's, you know, no, no disrespect to Atlanta, but I mean, if you're going to put Atlanta up next to Los Angeles, it's, it's going to be tough, you know, because there is a lot of cool stuff out in LA. Number one, the Pacific Ocean. But uh, <laughs> so Atlanta isn't even on the Gulf Coast, you know. <laughs> so, but it, so anyway, it was 1998. We, I was at Terminal Reality um, and we were getting ready to try to launch gathering of developers. We were actually really trying to find an investor, a big investor, a big, powerful industry partner. And, um, yeah, I remember we, we took a Cessna 172 that I had shelled, taken the, the shell of a Cessna 172 air, air that's an airplane. And we had a, a flight simulator called fly that we had developed at terminal reality. And it was going to be published by the new gathering of developers. We also had a, a game. Well, we had a demo called the bullet time demo out there. That was uh, Max Payne. 
and then we had a Nocturne in an engine uh, that we were demoing, and that was turned out to be Nocturne. So anyway, yeah, that was 1998, Atlanta, Georgia. No, no, wait, wait. I just realized something. So this is 98. This is before the Matrix came out. The bullet time thing was a thing before the Matrix? Um, was it Max Payne that? Max Payne did that, the slowdown of time and that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, I never realized that. Mm-hmm. that, that the, the, certainly the Matrix is what popularized that in pop culture, right? But, yeah, uh, the Matrix came yeah. out in 99, so yeah, that's right yeah, right it, before it, that. It was, but but the technology it existed, you know. Um, so it was, uh, it was a really amazing technical demo. Like <clears throat> the the, I think part of what Remedy, and those are the the developers of Max Payne um, from Helsinki, Finland. Uh, they were looking for advice and guidance, and E three was a place to go where you had the smartest people the most active people in the gaming industry really did gather there because this was, I don't even know really how the origin of E3 started, why it came to Atlanta and things like that. So I can't speak to some of the ESA and how that grew that's behind E3, but they, you know, GDC and a couple, uh, you know, now PAX is different, but like GDC now is known as the business where you get business done. And it's kind of, not boring, but it certainly doesn't have the flash and the cash of E3. You know, E3 is where you went to see the big, crazy stuff get announced in a big, crazy way. And that's that's changing. You know, E3 was a great idea. And then when it went to Hollywood, it freaking went to Hollywood. You know what I'm saying? It, it became Hollywood. And it became the price of Hollywood, too. It's very expensive. And that, that's part of the reason why you guys, why Devolver has their booth outside um, the main, yeah, well, well, absolutely. Because it was, uh, you didn't have a choice. You were told how much you were going to pay to be able to participate in E3. You had no choice. They would look at your gross revenues and, um, charge you appropriately. If, and then let's say, let's say we did want to pay to play. And we said, here, we're God games. And we're going to give you a million dollars, you know, to get inside that show floor, which trust me, there's much more than that spent. And they say, well, that's cool. We'll take your million dollars. But since your first year, we're going to still put you way, 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 way back in North Hall (laughs) where nobody is, where nobody else is. And you're like, what? Oh, and then door, you know, done. So like, it was just, uh, it, it didn't feel very fair to any of us who are in the industry and gathering of developers was all about, kind of bucking the system and uh, taking it to the man, if you will, where the big money that was crushing and t- uh, the artist and stealing their ideas a little bit, taking the credit for their ideas and putting their logo on it. That's what we were fighting to stop. We were going for developer driven publishing. That was the credo of God games. So um, E3 was also very important for us because we were out there on credit cards paying for the booth rent. That is the one year that, you know, that we paid a, uh, the ESA, uh, I don't even know if it was the ESA at the time, to actually have floor space. But we were out there fishing so hard for investors. That's where we had people from England and and Australia and Japan and, you know, everybody all come into this one town, you know, to, to, uh, to meet. So we were really trying to fund gathering of developers really extremely hard. And E3 gave the opportunity 
to to have all these people face to face. You get to see live demos of the games. You get to uh, you know shake people's hands and see if you can trust them by looking them in the eye. Those those were the opportunities that the early E three afforded, uh, and um, so it, and we actually did get funded at that E three. Gathering of developers became real. Yeah, you know I uh, I got a chance to go the year after that uh, Smitty had his first year. It went to uh, E3 in 99, so this was back in L.A. Winner. I'm the winner. First. (laughs) Were you at the 99 one as well, Smitty? Absolutely. Yeah, of course he was. So you you guys were there at the same time, but you didn't know each other yet? No, no, no. I would have kicked his ass. You may have crossed paths. (laughs) I would have just just kicked his ass. (laughs) You would have had to have gotten through security. Ninety nine, I was very famous. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Sure, you were the security back then. No, no. Ninety nine was a great year for for E three. Got to remember though that back then, this was all industry. This wasn't fan yeah. attended. Yeah, you're right. You know, you you got a chance to see something, and and if you think about where gaming was ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, that era, we were past the Nintendo. We were past the Super Nintendo. N64 was out. You know, all these these kind of what we called next-gen consoles. We were, we were starting to see 3D really Don't forget hit. about PC. Uh, AMD had just put out the Athlon processor. Uh, you had a Pentium one and a half. <laughs> yeah, this was this was big deal. I mean, it, yeah. in 99, uh, you had uh, my favorite story f- for that one was the the Nintendo 64 itself was getting ready to drop this uh partnership game for uh Star Wars Episode 1 Pod Racing, right? Oh yeah, I remember that. I remember that. <laughs> the movie the movie regardless of what you thought of the the prequels, one of the coolest things about it was the pod race, right? And Yeah, it's a good scene. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, of all the video games that came out attached to Episode 1, the Pod Racing game is easily the best one of, of all of them and at the time uh nintendo had partnered with uh lucas arts to kind of set up this massive booth specifically for this game and they had built using uh kind of replicas of the pods that were in the films they had built a stage where you could go up sit inside one of these pods and play the game on a big screen. So of course, I'm getting in line. I'm gonna. I'm hell yeah. I want to do this. I want to pod race on the giant projection screen as if you know I'm actually racing. Because who wouldn't want to do that? So I get in line. I sit down, and while I am there, there's this big pomp and circumstance going on, kind of behind. I don't know what's going on. I'm just racing, you know, and whatnot. And. Uh, up comes like this crowd surrounding this kid. Well, it turns out the kid that played little young Anakin, so Jake Lloyd, mm-hmm. al- also from Indiana, um, he steps up and they want to do a photo op of him sitting in the pod playing the pod racing game while we're doing this. So I'm mm. sitting in a pod next to him while they're doing the photo op and he's playing, you know, he's, he's a kid. He wants to play the game. So he's playing the game a little bit. And then, you know, of course the smile for the camera kind of thing. And of course I beat his ass. 
Yeah. Of course you did. <laughs> I, I and, won. You, you, and you won a Turbo Man in the process. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, no, this was like a, an amazing time. But y- you have all of these. You, you talked about the Hollywood of uh, of what E3 became. And really, that's when you stepped inside the, the larger halls. That's what you had. You had this over-the-top production with oh, these yeah. one-off builds of signs and and displays that they were just going to toss and they would fire their speakers at each other they would try to out loud the other booth like out i'm louder than you and they would it was so loud that even on the show floor you were like hey (laughs) let do you have a meeting room you know and people and so one of the side effects of all this hollywood glamorization of the of the show floor is quiet meeting room spaces being built out in you know on the show floor became actually part of your important build out and so then when you would go um you would and then that started the trade tradition of um the jp marriott uh the marriott becoming a hotbed for meetings to take place away from all of this away off site for sure and in fact uh true well, a couple of years ago, I was out there when we were starting um, Special Reserve Games, and I met with SIEA. Was I was meeting with Sony, and they had their meeting rooms at uh, across the street at, at I think it was at the Marriott, if I'm not mistaken. It was at one of the hotels, and you know they just it was is good for them, right? Because they can have all their corporate executives. There are some high value people, high value targets, like we say there that had need security and whatnot. You can secure that a lot better in that hotel, and then they can um, everyone comes to them, <laughs> you know, yeah. for the meetings and stuff. Mm. But that's actually really cool. It becomes a badge of honor, by the way, to be able to say, "Oh, I'm sorry, Eric. I I have to leave the line for the Pod Racer game because I have a meeting with Sony across the street at the JP Marriott." <laughs> you know, that that's. Don't forget to lift your pinky when you say that. Well, and I'll tell you what, and then you go across the street to get into the meeting and they give you like a special colored wristband or they do something like that. Well, you wouldn't take it off because then you got to go back across the street and people are like, oh, you're, (laughs) well, well, yeah, people think you're important. (laughs) We got to get going. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with you. With Alice Cooper. We're not worthy! We're not worthy! A lot of the things that fans heard about and saw in pictures and video of the early days was based on that kind of battle. You talked about cranking up the speaker sound, but it wasn't just that. This is exactly why things like Booth Babes came up. This is exactly why freebies would come up. You know, you'd you'd want to get your thing to be the most attractive. You want that attention. So you would do anything and everything to try to draw that, you know, free discs of stuff. Hell, they gave away Dreamcasts. Well, but then the following year, you had to top what you did, and then you had to top what everybody Everyone else, else did. did. And yeah. that became a thing. Like, that wasn't a gathering. We were kind of, in my opinion, we set the standard for what could be done uh, across the street because we we did have booth babes. We did have people dressed up in characters, uh, but we gave away 
uh, barbecue and keg beer, yep. and we flew all a great a bunch of bands in, like the Flame Trick Subs from Austin, Texas, with Satan's cheerleaders as their backup dancers, and just the way you'd see them at Stubbs in Austin is exactly the way you saw them at Pico and Figueroa, you know, and and so that's what we're like, hey, let's throw a party, and so we called our place Hell Texas, and so we just renamed that little corner Hell Texas, and uh, so yeah, it's the same kind of concept, but that's what we thought. If you're going to throw a big party, throw a party, you know, don't, don't make it a, a weird, you know, uh, whatever's going across the street, you know? <laughs> so we just never really uh, embraced that model, but we sure appreciated the gathering of minds and creatives that always did attend E3. And it still does, you know, still would. I'm not saying it's dead, but it's just changed over the years and things like packs. And then you don't just have packs anymore. You, you now you have packs east packs west packs south you know used to have just one packs you know they're used to yeah. gdc's now you have gdc you know there's a san francisco gdc there's a new york gdc and then there's a you know so it there not everybody goes to one show anymore is what i'm saying you can get business done differently and, and boy that just gets expensive over time doesn't it <laughs> and honestly as a game developer we always 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 geared our development cycles up so we would have hopefully a beta uh you know something that was going to be on its way to show gold and master yeah. well we we had to because you had to give press demos at mm -hmm. that point and this is like like blues news and games Spot and I don't know i can't remember if ign was a thing back then but there were very few even really credible news sites like computer gaming monthly magazine pc Gamer oh, yeah. magazine uh and you know by the way if you want to have a weird star wars thing that you were just talking about talk about pc gamer magazine who was the uh editor-in-chief gary witta oh yeah what did gary witta do oh yeah he went on to write rogue one so just fyi he was british <laughs> dude <laughs> you know so he was one of the writers of rogue one but um it's uh you know the magazines just anybody that remembers how magazines used to work and they still do, they don't print immediately. They usually come out about 30 days after. So, you know, let's say today, uh, you know, it's June 1st. Well, you couldn't prove it until, you know, I mean, 30 days later would be when it comes out, no matter what, because it printing and distribution. So we would have to make a game, have a demo that was kind of make or break over those few days where we had press interviews scheduled back to back to back to back every 30 minutes. Like, you know, shout out to Andy and Lori and all the people back that used to do our PR. Um, they, but we would just be scheduled as developers for three days straight. It was unrelenting. So you had just spent probably the last two months killing yourself doing grinding late night ruining marriage type of business you know type of hours in the office to get that that alpha to beta or get that beta to a gold master candidate or something so you could go sell it to a publisher so you could go get good press reviews so you could do any kind of business you wanted and then any of the impact from what you had especially press wouldn't even be felt for at least 30 or 45 days until right. after e3 in at fact, the earliest in fact you know? what i know from people that i've talked to over the years uh that that had a lot of the same experience the most popular two weeks to set up a vacation outside of Christmas was the two weeks after, after E3. After, and we still do that to this day. Yeah. That is exactly 
exactly. But now here's the difference. <laughs> in 1999, when we used to take it off, well, me, Doug, my, you know, we would, I don't know, rent a yacht and go straight out into the middle of the ocean for a week and then turn around and drive back for the next week. You know, it didn't matter. We would do whatever. We were enjoying life. Now we're all taking our children out there who are 16, <laughs> 17, 18. We've got some kids, some of the kids in our group are 25 now. And uh, so now what we do is we go out to E3 and our families either go with us sometimes or will eventually meet us out there. Then we take the vacation after, like, on our way home, if you will, from L.A. to wherever we're going, and we turn it into a family vacation now. So I, I usually end up in Colorado, which I just absolutely love Colorado because uh, it's kind of halfway home, you know. And my daughter and I'll go and, you know, kick around in Durango or Pagosa Springs or something like that. And uh, so, yeah, it's still done to this day. Just like we said, E3 isn't happening this year for the first time in two decades. Um, but the industry still coalesces around these dates as you know important uh to and and we don't know quite why it's almost like christmas you know it's december 25th just because it always has been <laughs> you know <laughs> well now we're seeing a lot of companies adapt to this uh what they keep calling the new normal and uh, you know we've already talked about not being a fan of that phrase but um, so, you know, we are seeing announcements and releases from from gaming companies around titles that are going to be coming out in the next few months. Um, certainly, this this pandemic has not necessarily been a bad thing for video games. A lot of people are staying in and, and playing and buying games. Um, but do you think this is going to affect uh, next year's E3 in that case? Okay, so all these companies didn't have to spend a bunch of money this year to go mm -hmm. and to set up their stuff. Are they going to think twice before doing it next year or in future years? If, if, if their campaigns are effective. That's already What's started, that? right? The, we, we already saw Sony pulling out of E3. And we've already right. seen signs of Nintendo slowing down. We've seen signs of Microsoft slowing down. Smaller companies are not going anymore. Well, well, well Sony's not going anywhere for the whole year. You know, like, like it's not just E3. It's was all Was that before events. the COVID-19 thing it, happened? It was, was but I think this just kind of puts the nail in that coffin. I think that that may be something they don't ever do well, again. Well, and, you know, and in this situation where it, it's not, there are so many negatives that we can all easily see about any of this just coming to a screeching halt. But it's also going to be a great positive in the way that, you know, to use a... I'm going to use this reimagined. You know, you're, there's going to have to be a reimagining of number one, what is the purpose of E3? And then realigning, hopefully, what E3 can become uh, again, because right now it's a show that used to happen. You know, it's a sh show that I remember. It's not a show that's coming up, just like many of the other shows. So I think there's two battles. One is you're going to have to try to regain the business excitement element of what E3 was, um, just in how it's presented by these other opportunities that other companies are seeing of how they can present to the mass public through online or whatever. But the other is you're going to have to make people, well, you're going to have to hit it at a time where people feel safe 
to travel because let's just say E3 was back on August 1st. Like GDC had actually announced an August date. You know, they were calling it the summer, GDC summer, whatever. And trust me, <laughs> no one's booking flights, you know. No, no one's booking no, no, flights no. to go. And by the way, there's about one fifth of the flights going into California now that there used to be anyway. And, uh, you know, so you've got the Airbnb people who are going upside down. There's less places to stay. You know, they didn't build more hotels during the COVID-19. So you're going to have like the, this combination of very strange logistical problems to even allow E3 to happen again because everything around it, the support infrastructure of the city is so changed and altered forever in some cases. But yeah, I think the biggest is going to be the mental barricade that I would say half of the industry, when you've got literally half the people at E3 that come from overseas, they're not just in America, they're coming from Wuhan, China, they're coming from London, England, you know, to, to know that they are going to be able to travel out of the country, come back into their country, not quarantine for 14, you know, just all kinds of weird things at play. So there's no answer. But the two answers are they have to recapture the business purpose of E3. And then you're going to have to actually capture the right time that people that attend would feel safe to attend, whatever that even means. Previously, I covered some of the more weird and wacky endeavors that Hiroshi Yamauchi explored during his early years leading Nintendo. From taxi service to instant rice, to love hotels and copy machines. It seemed as though Nintendo was on an existential search for its own future. Real success, however, and the seeds of what was to become the electronic entertainment giant we know and love today were not necessarily to be found outside of their four walls. Thank you for coming back and listening to this week's new segment of Fireflower from Paper to Pixels. Everything is awesome. Did you know that on average there are over 80 Lego bricks for every person on Earth? Founded in 1932 by Ole Kirk Christensen, Lego had been a beloved toy for young and old alike. Also much like Nintendo, their success has been undeniable. The Lego group recorded over $4 billion in revenue in 2019 and they continue to partner with world-renowned IP such as Harry Potter, Bob the Builder, Ghostbusters, Ferrari, DC, Marvel, and of course, Star Wars. Although the first Lego blocks were made of wood, in 1949, Lego began producing the interlocking plastic blocks that we are all familiar with today. This year, Lego is partnering with Nintendo on a new line of Super Mario Adventure sets with a unique feature. The Lego Mario figure will have an LCD screen in his eyes, mouth, and belly that will bring a new dimension to both Mario and Lego. But this isn't the first experience that Nintendo has with the wonderful world of interconnecting plastic blocks. Nearly everyone, it seems, has had a go at replicating the success of Lego and their famous blocks. In 
1968, Nintendo released their own line of interlocking plastic blocks called N&B Block, if not the earliest, at least one of the earliest serious contenders to LEGO. Nintendo's toy division created new and unique shapes with curves, often marketed as being superior to LEGO's own blocks due to this fact. The N&B block sets were even mostly compatible with LEGO blocks themselves, though the tolerances between the pieces were not as precise as what LEGO produced, causing some of the bricks to fit together poorly at times. Nintendo released sets for nearly four years, including houses, animals, functioning clocks, and more. In fact, as I mentioned previously in an earlier segment to Fireflower, an NNB block version of Nintendo's Rabbit Coaster was released, giving you the opportunity to build the track that the rabbit slid down. There was even a Moon Rover set with landmines developed by Gunpei Yokoi, designer of the Ultra Hand. Ultimately, LEGO filed a suit against Nintendo, claiming that the NNB blocks infringed upon the LEGO product. However, Nintendo successfully defended NNB blocks by citing the unique block designs that they used to market the product. Although there were intriguing sets such as the train, coaster, gondola, and even a ringing bell, the line of blocks were discontinued in 1972. Though Nintendo no longer produces the blocks, they have made appearances within a few games. Super Mario Land 2 even has a level where some of the blocks that make up the stage are labeled NNB. During this same era, Nintendo began experimenting with electronic toys. In 1970, the Elekonga electronic drum kit appeared on store shelves. Developed by, you guessed it, Gunpei Yokoi, the Elekonga was essentially a basic five-sound synthesizer and speaker in a small conga drum enclosure. Pressing each of the buttons on the top would produce a unique sound. There was an optional auto player attachment which connected to the Elekonga via a cable. Each auto player came with a set of cardboard discs that would produce a series of inputs when spun around. In some ways, the Elekonga is an early ancestor to the DK conga drums from the GameCube era. It seems that 1970 was quite the pivotal year in Nintendo's history and quite the busy one for Gunpei. One of these developments came from a new partnership. The electronics company Sharp was developing a fairly new photosensitive component, commonly known as a photoresistor. At a basic level, there are two pieces of conductive metal separated by a small gap that's filled with a light-sensitive material. When enough light hits this sensor, it allows for more electricity to cross the gap. Masayuki Uemura, a sales engineer from Sharp, was looking to find ways to use the developing technology and met with Gunpei. Gunpei's creative approach to toys, combined with this new photocell, gave birth to the Kosenju SP series of light gun toys. The Kosenju SP sets commonly had a set of targets that contained photosensors and were compatible with both the handgun and rifle gun, both of which shot a beam of light at the target. When the photosensor was hit with the beam of light, the target toy would react in some way. Nintendo and Sharp's partnership was yet another smash hit, selling hundreds of thousands of units. Sharp and Nintendo would partner again in the 1980s, but that's a story for another time.
that's going to do it for another episode of Games You Deserve. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to follow us on social media. If you haven't already, you can find links in the description below. For Smitty and Eric, I'm producer Dan. Until next time. Game over. Game over.